large, I'm Ludwig Lopate. I, I can't remember a recent television newscast where there wasn't some cell phone or other video footage of an accident or a crime. New technologies have especially transformed our understanding of police and vigilante violence on black people. And as a result, the public has become a witness to racial injustices that might have been misread and gone unpunished in the past. A new book from Mark Lamont Hill and Todd Brewster takes a look at the latest developments, seen and unseen technology, social media, and the fight for racial justice is published by Atria Books and brings Mark Lamont Hill, the host of BET News and Black News, tonight on our show. Welcome to our show, Dr. Hill. Uh, call me Mark. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's an honor to be talking about such important issues on one of the most uh, important news outlets, radio outlets in the world. <laughs> well, later we'll even mention how uh, WBAI got a mention in your book, but not yet. Uh, <laughs> yes. Do you argue in this book that for most of American history, our media have reinforced and promoted racism? Oh, absolutely. The media has been a key uh, ally in the white nationalist, white supremacist struggle for uh, control and domination of this world. Uh, the media has been the key outpost for so much uh, disinformation and misinformation about uh, about black people and brown people and other racialized people. Uh, the media has helped normalize the construction of race itself. Uh, all of this stuff is media driven. Media also has been an ally to people who want to get free. So, you know, in, in this book, one of the things that we talk about is the fact that the media is neither good nor bad. These technologies and tools are agnostic. Uh, it's how we put use to them that matters. It just so happens what well, doesn't just so happen. The, the, the reality of our system is such that the powerful have far more control over uh, media and technology than everyday ordinary people who are catching hell. You begin your book by pointing out that, quote, since the end of the Civil War, America has been nagged by what was often called uh, as if uh, as if describing a problem child, the Negro question. And for the great majority of that time, the answer was one delivered by white journalists and white academics, white politicians, white policymakers, white pastors and white businessmen, white novelists and white scientists. So mm -hmm. they, they were the ones that the media went to. Yeah, it's, it's who the world looked to. Black people were something to be explained. We were objects. We were a curiosity. We were a problem. Think about W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, the souls of black folk when he says, you know, he talks about that, that question, uh, how does it feel to be a problem? <laughs> That's how we approach this. The idea that black people or brown people, uh, indigenous folk, uh, uh, Muslim, South Asian, Sikh, uh, we can go on down the list of people, right, through because of racism, white supremacy, Orientalism, etc. We've never been understood as people who have the capacity to advocate for ourselves, to speak for ourselves, to tell our own stories, to tell our own truths. Uh, and as a result, think people have always talked about us. In fact, black people advocating for themselves or speaking about their own condition has almost been seen as a uh, an interruption to progress. You know, it's like sick people don't talk about how to fix themselves. The doc let the doctors talk, right? Let the experts talk. Mm -hmm. that, that's been the logic. But uh, some of the, the black voices uh, 
uh, are memorable, like Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Ida B. Wells, W.B. Oh, yeah. Du Bois, James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison. And, and uh, whites were also horrified by the racism that we've seen over the years. Yeah, for sure. There's never been a shortage of resistance. Um, but it's important to understand that these people that you've just named so masterfully, all of whom are, of course, mentioned in the book. Um, That's why I mentioned them. Exactly. I appreciate your careful read of the book. Uh, they, they're all speaking against the grain. These are voices in the wilderness. Frederick Douglass is traveling uh, throughout the world uh, to speak about abolition and his vision of what would later be called by Du Bois an abolition democracy. He's attempting to articulate his vision for the possibilities of America. But people don't want to hear that deep baritone voice speaking uh, truth to power. They don't want to hear him offer a philosophical analysis of, uh, of, 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 of the American democratic experiment or, or democracy. No, they want to hear him talk about the brutality of slavery. They want to hear him talk about what was it like to get whipped? What was it like to be beaten? How awful was it? they want a uh, kind of a kind of uh, a, a, a plantation porn, right? Similar to now when we, when we make movies or we make documentaries or we have TV shows that show violence in the inner city that show shootings and, 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 and drug uh, sales and such. We, we, we want the, the tawdry, we want the violent, we want the salacious, but we don't want the substance. And so these people are pushing back. Baldwin, uh, who we mentioned in the book, and of course uh, gave a, a roundtable in 1961 on WBAI, which was a game changer in many ways. Uh, he uh, he was always speaking back against back against people. His debate with a Yale University philosopher. He, he was speaking not just against that philosopher, he was speaking against what counted as the common sense or the norm of the day. Ida B. Wells was taking the same photographs uh, that uh, people were passing around as postcards. White people were passing around postcards of lynching. It was a celebratory uh, image. She was reusing, she was repurposing that photograph to say, look, there's a crisis here. And hopefully you white liberals who care so much, allegedly, will do something about the lynching crisis that's going on in this country. Um, and so you're right. There's always been black voices. There's been white allies that have spoken up and spoken out. But, but they're always operating against the grain. But he, he, uh, you mentioned Baldwin's uh, on that 1961 broadcast on WBAI. He said to be black and conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage. But you devote many pages to him and write that he occupies a special place among black writers of the 20th century uh, because he made enemies and friends of both among both integrationists and separatists. Yeah, um, if you think about Baldwin not being invited to speak at the March on Washington uh, for Jobs and Freedom in August of 63, there were people who thought he was too radical. Set aside uh, the idea that he was a queer black man in, in, in the 1960s, right, which was enough to disqualify him from a whole bunch of stuff. We saw the same thing with Baird Rustin, obviously. Although when he wrote a book about uh, a gay character, uh, he made him white. His narrator yeah. was white in Paris. Yeah, yeah. Giovanni's room. Yeah. Giovanni's room. Um, he made a very intentional decision about that. Again, there, there are many reasons why I think Baldwin enters that space. And there's a very interesting book of Begin Again by uh, Eddie Glaude, Professor Eddie Glaude of Princeton University, which unpacks some of the complexities 
of Baldwin's logic, not specifically about Giovanni's room, but about the significance of Paris, the significance of his of his um, of his fiction and and the reasons why he appealed to particular kind of racial tropes as a way of navigating the, both the literary world and the political world. But with Baldwin, there were people who thought, yeah, Baldwin's got it, but he's too radical. Right. He, he's he, he doesn't have the type of faith in the American project that others do. And that's not to say that Baldwin was without faith, right? Because there are many people on the other side of the of the equation. I wouldn't say the other side, just uh, just a different political stripe who would have said Baldwin has too much faith in this place. He still believes that black people are Americans who 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 should be invested in this place and in transforming it. Right. This idea of another chance that we uh that we talk about in the last chapter of our book, or that again, God talks about with begin again is, is a belief that we can do, we can, we can redo this, that we can perfect this, that we can make changes. So if you look at, for example, Malcolm X. Wait, I want to ask about him a oh, bit more. How important yeah. was the fact that he was a boy preacher? I think it's incredibly important. Um, there's a way. And, and again, if you, if you read um, the fire next time, mm-hmm. the, the second chapter, the first chapter being, of course, the letter to his nephew, which is a, a beautiful piece of, of writing, but even in, even in the chapters of the nephew, right when when he when he talks about sort of his brother and his brother's sort of self hate and the way the, the impact of white supremacy on his brother, and he and he he said that part of what he said is that's why he became so holy, right? So he has he understood a relationship between some of these kind of certain forms of religiosity uh, and an attempt to make sense of a world that doesn't love you. So Baldwin always had an interesting, fascinating relationship to religion, uh, that he talks about as a boy preacher, but then a faith that he eventually shakes. Right. And, and even in this, the second part of that book, when he talks about being, uh, when he offers this kind of critique of the nation of Islam, it's a very interesting space from which he operates. Right. Part of it is a political critique, but part of it underneath that is still a critique of a particular type of religiosity. Uh, Baldwin, Baldwin developed his voice as a preacher, literally. He developed his his passion as a preacher, but he also recognized contradictions. I think those those contradictions in some ways were perfectly transported into his analysis of the American project. Because he understood as you know, there, there's there's something old Christians say in the church, God loves you just the way you are, uh, but loves you too much to leave you that way. <laughs> I, I think there's a way that Baldwin understood America as 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 not something that needed to be loved per se, but something that that something that worth being invested in, but something that but the investment meant that you had to constantly be challenging it. Right. That's what Baldwin talked about. Patriotism being an act of constant critique. It's 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 not it's not mindless allegiance, but it's constant critique. It's perpetual. I believe he uses the word he used, perpetual critique of the country. That's a, that's a certain kind of faith project. It's much more realistic, actionable faith than the kind of blind, almost, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like an evangelical or a um, fundamentalist, excuse me, a fundamentalist kind of kind of faith in, in America. He, he, he loved it, but he wanted to change it. And at times he had to leave. Yeah. He became an expat for a while. Yeah. Not, and, and, and France was, was a better place to live if you were an African-American? France was, for many black folk, um, maybe still, you know, depending on who you are, what you are. But uh, France absolutely was a better space. Um, to be out of the kind of muck and mire of American Jim Crow, American apartheid at that moment, um, to have space to breathe a little bit. It's not that France didn't have its own contradictions. It's not that France wasn't wrestling with uh, colonial domination. It wasn't that they weren't 
uh, Algerians, for example, who were catching hell. It wasn't that France treated the Negro as if he were a king or a god or she were a king or a god. But it's that he could he could he could literally breathe outside of the the kind of restriction of what it meant to be black and Negro, even in the north, even in Harlem, where he's coming from. Right. He wasn't in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. He was in Harlem. It also gave him space as a writer. And and we can't ignore the queer piece of this. It also gave him space to be a queer black man. I'm not sure if he can write, uh, if there's an equivalent Cafe Le Fleur in, 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 uh, in, in, in Uptown, you know, where he could sort of be up and out in public and writing in the way that he did. I think there's something extraordinary about that. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI Org, and I'm speaking with Mark Lamont Hill, co-author with Todd Brewster of Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice. It is published by Atria Books. You were going to talk about Malcolm X. Uh, as I remember, Malcolm X first came to the public's attention after he protested the beating of Hinton Johnson, a Nation of Islam member, by two New York City police officers. You don't write about that in this book, but it does fit into the theme of your book because the grand yeah. jury declined to indict the officers. Yeah, that that's a <laughs> that's a constant challenge here in the United States. Um, black people are killed by the state. Uh, it's, it's a state sanctioned or state sponsored uh, killing. It's an extrajudicial killing that the police officer or whomever becomes the judge, jury and executioner on the street. We saw that uh, in the killing of George Floyd. We saw that in the killing of Trayvon Martin, where a citizen self deputizes to do that. I'm talking about George Zimmerman. Uh, we talk about Darren Wilson killing Mike Brown. Uh, we talk about Daniel Pantaleo uh, killing Eric Garner. We could we could go on down the list. And there's a way that at every moment, look, think about the beating of Rodney King 31 years ago. There, there's always a moment where when these crises happen, many of us advocate and fight and struggle and believe that we'll get some sense of justice from the courts, from the system. And what we come to realize often is that black death isn't enough black pain black trauma isn't enough black witness Hmm. black testimony a black person saying look they beat me they shot me they killed me isn't enough that's where the videotape comes in that's where the phone cell phone footage comes in that's where the live streams hmm. come in that's where the body cameras come in and i don't advocate body cameras uh we can talk about that later as an abolitionist I, i think that's the wrong approach but my point is there's a way that we've had to leverage media and technology as a way of getting justice because we couldn't assume that our death was enough or our testimony was enough. Our testimony wasn't enough to shape the nation. Frederick Douglass traveled this country as an abolitionist. Slave narratives have existed, in, you know, as narratives of enslaved Africans have existed for hundreds of years, and, and, and yet it did nothing. Ida B. Wells Barnett carried the, the photos and, and spread, distributed the photos of, of lynchings. And, and it, it, it made some people uh, shudder, but it made many people indifferent or, or, or it didn't do anything to change their indifference. This is this is a longstanding problem. Well, and, and she was challenging uh, the inconsistencies and and falsehoods that were published in Main Street newspapers. Ida B. Wells. Absolutely. And, and with the, but with that's the part of the black that private... she was, of lynchings of black men. 
Yeah, I mean, part of what black people and advocates in this freedom struggle have always done is point out the contradictions, whether it's of the liberal media, whether it's of the Constitution. You could go back to David uh, David Walker's appeal, right, to the uh, a preamble together with four articles to the colored citizens of the world, uh, but particularly and most expressly those of the United States. When David Walker writes his appeal and he makes a preamble together with four articles, what he's doing is he's modeling it after the Constitution and he's trying to implicitly say, hey, wait a minute, you have this thing that promises life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and yet the Negro remains unable to access it. Uh, when King stands up in 63, in the March on Washington, in, in front of Lincoln, it's 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, he's saying, wait a minute, there's a contradiction between what you said you were, America, right? Uh, four score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand signed an Emancipation Proclamation, right? He's saying he signed this thing, and this, this, this hallowed decree, this moment, right, was supposed to be a great beacon of what? Of light for who? For Negroes. But what happened? The Negro remained in a vast island of poverty amidst an ocean of material wealth and prosperity, according to King. And according to all of it, right? He said that the Negro's check has been returned insufficient funds. He said, I refuse to believe the great vaults of democracy could be empty. King is saying, America, you have a contradiction here. Ida B. Wells was pointing out the contradiction. And Malcolm X was pointing out the contradictions. He was saying, if these documents documents were in one of his most famous speeches that these documents were authentic the emancipation proclamation if all these if all of these documents the constitution were authentic if they were real if these treaties mattered then you we wouldn't be here as negroes in america as the victims the victims the victims of american democracy and so so malcolm x is organizing in harlem around a brother brutalized by police was part of a long tradition of african freedom fighters here in america attempting to gather some bit of justice, but, some bit of, yeah. No, finish your thought. No, to gather some bit of justice uh, against the backdrop of a state that simply is uninterested in, in granting it. Well, ironically, after Malcolm protested the incident that I mentioned, the police department assigned undercover officers to infiltrate the nation of Islam. Right, because again, it was more important for them to keep track of someone who had the power to hold them accountable than it was to... To, to keep track of the thing that we want, we're demanding accountability for. Like they could have used that energy to investigate police brutality in Harlem, right? Instead, mm -hmm. they're going to use it to investigate the people who are, pro who are protesting police brutality in Harlem. And you're right, that, that, that unit... Um, it was also a dangerous group seen as a, an insurrectionist group. Yeah, they were seen as an insurrectionist group because the Nation of Islam was standing up and speaking out against America. They... they, they, they assessed america at, at the political and moral level as evil right they, they 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 invoked the language of the bible they used the exodus narrative uh they they saw black people as, as people in the wilderness of north america sojourning but they were uh, muslims they were muslims well that's exactly right and as all muslims do they they they, they acknowledge the legitimacy of of the old testament uh, but they were using it as the nation of Islam certainly has done, but particularly in the in the first 30 years of its 40 years of its existence, uh, they certainly appealed to the Bible even more in the Exodus narrative to say, look, we are the children of Israel. We are the lost found. That's us. And we're here. And these are the last days. And so the American empire had is, is, a, is a problem. The American empire is the thing that's keeping us down and that must be dismantled. The only way to do that is to separate. So yeah, they, they were seen as an insurrectionist group because the nation of Islam had the wisdom at the time, uh, long before many others to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe America as such isn't salvageable 
right? This is when we go back to the Baldwin connection, right? That maybe it's not that we need to redeem America, but that we need to build something else. You know, Baldwin talks about the fire next time, right? Mm-hmm. God gave Noah the rainbow sign, right? The first time is water, and then what? The fire. It'll be next fire time. next time. It'll be mm-hmm. fire next time. The nation was saying, you know, it's it's time for the fire. Well, you were mentioning the contradictions of the of, throughout our history. We know a lot about Thomas Jefferson's contradictory ideas about race because he was such a prolific writer. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you, and when you, you write about him, uh, how much of an impact did he have? Because people must have seen through the fact that on the one hand, he was uh, speaking against slavery. On the other hand, he was owning slaves. You know, these kind of these kinds of contradictions aren't, aren't uncommon. Um, there are people who saw through it, but there are people who look to explain it away because they were also uh, wrestling with the same contradictions to say slavery is improper as such. But I am a man of my time. Right. These, this is the moment we're in. This is my economic condition. And, 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 and you know, there are many uh, slaveholders who some who held on to slaves because they thought that was the right thing to do. Others engaged in manumission. Um, others said, you know, upon my death, you will be released. The, the, the move toward abolition has never been singular among among uh, slaveholders. Uh, you know, instead, many had different beliefs. And, and those beliefs, to me, are an index of your character and morals. Right. If you say, well, look, slavery's bad. So when I die, y'all can go. So in 30 years, 20 years, 50 years, y'all can go. That's a very different be- hmm. estimation of my value than saying, you know what? you will be immediately released now because this is an unsustainable, horrible institution. But when you look at Jefferson, Jefferson, like Hume, like Kant, like other enlightenment era philosoph- you know, philosophers and thinkers and writers, uh, offered analyses of race itself and of black people and of Africans. And, and it was, it was Hume and it was Hume's uh, analysis that black people were inferior. It was Kant who believed that African people didn't have the same capacity as, as their European counterparts. It was, it was Jefferson in Notes on Virginia uh, in his critique of Phyllis Wheatley who talked about uh, the idea largely that Phyllis Wheatley didn't have the ability to write poems on various subjects, religious mm-hmm. and moral, her first book, uh, the, the first book written published by an African-American or an African in America, but rather that it was merely mimetic, that she was simply replicating the style and the language of the Bible. She, he said Christianity produced Phyllis Wheatley, but it could not produce a poet. So this type of... Unlike a lot of other white writers. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, that's the irony, right? I mean, white people didn't have to qualify for the standards they were imposing on black folk. There were white people giving literacy tests uh, at, at the polls to deny black people their constitutional right to vote. And many of the white people administering the literacy test couldn't read. It just didn't matter. Being white was enough. One of the other ironies is that uh, years after the Civil War, we had a president, Woodrow Wilson, who uh, reintroduced segregation into Washington and and screened the birth of a nation in the White House. D.W. Griffith's racist film. Not only did he screen birth of a nation in the White House, but birth of a nation was the first film ever screened at the White House. I mean, can you imagine what that means? Right? I mean, imagine if they'd never aired a TV show in the White House and the first one they showed was like Tucker Carlson, right? That, like that uh-huh. would mean something. Yes. That would mean something. And, and, and Birth of a Nation, which undoubtedly was a technological achievement. It was a huge advance 
of the genre of film itself. Yeah, also, we, well, he was a great filmmaker, but still, uh, didn't uh, William Monroe Trotter, a Boston newspaper man, try to mobilize popular dissent against the birth of a nation? How effective absolutely, was he? Absolutely. And people people spoke out it for years. I mean, even Baldwin spoke out against it. But Du Bois spoke out against it. Trotter spoke out against it. Garvey spoke out against it. In fact, they wanted to make a counterfilm um, that um, to challenge the birth of a nation, but they didn't have the resources. This is why I say technology is not doesn't have a politics or an ethics attached to it. it it's important to make this point because you know birth of a nation was a masterpiece technologically and it was one of the most pejorative uh racist films ever produced in in the west and so it reinforced the, the idea of black 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 predatory nature that black people were these violent lazy animals looking to to, to rape and pillage uh the, the lives and the communities of, of white people and specifically white women uh it was a primary recruitment tool for the ku klux klan so so when we look at birth of a nation we can say yes technology it's great we love technology technology does all kinds of stuff it's like the cell phone get, helps us catch these crooked cops and et cetera, et cetera. We can always look at technology as a means of, of spotlighting possibility, but we can't ignore the fact that technology has also been used to great detriment of, 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 of black and brown people and that everybody doesn't have access to this stuff equally. And that's where power comes in. That's where money comes in. Well, uh, things have changed recently. Hasn't the recent democratization of technology ensured that communication tools are have are no longer available only or mostly to white and the powerful is that what makes today's situation different from the civil rights movement to the past it certainly closed the gap yeah 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 i mean if you look at cell phone market penetration in the united states i mean we're for adults we're in the 90s um and we start talking about more advanced phones you know um pdas and things like that you're in the like 80s i believe according to the last study the last pews poll that i looked at which i wrote an article on uh what we're going to do is we're going to take a little break and then we'll come back with our guest this is wbai new york 99.5 fm streaming live at wbai.org in Houston He's been busy ever since It's been a long A long time coming But I know Change is gonna come Yes it will Oh, oh, oh. It's been too hard living But he didn't have to George Floyd didn't hurt nobody. He was trying to comply. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know, no, change is gonna come. Yes, it will. Long, 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 long time coming. 
hope you're enjoying my conversation with Mark Lamont Hill. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice, the book he has co-authored with Todd Brewster. Just go online to give2wbai.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we will be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2wbai.org, 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Dr. Mark Lamont Hill, host of... BET News and Black News Tonight, author or co-author of six books. The one we are discussing is the most recent, which he has written with Todd Brewster, called Seen and Unseen Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice, published by Atria Books. And welcome back. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I, uh, I'm so excited to be here. And, and as, as we're talking, you asked a wonderful question about um, democratization and what yeah. that does. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, the more people who have cell phones, the more people who have access to streaming technology, the more people who have cameras, digital cameras and video, the more likely we are to, uh, to, 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 to democratize storytelling. Well, if a teenager hadn't caught George Floyd's killing on camera, wouldn't we have had to rely on what Derek Chauvin and the other Minneapolis police officers involved claimed had happened? Uh, Their word against what the mostly black witnesses on the sidewalk claimed that they'd seen? That's that's exactly right. Darnella Frazier uh, did something very important when she she recorded that that nine minutes and 29 seconds. I think you're right. I mean, again, I don't want to ever romanticize or fetishize the technology. I don't want people to think that if we just get cell phone cameras in everybody's hand, if we just if we just uh, give every police officer uh, dashboard cameras and body cameras or put cameras on every lamppost and on every lamppost. Right. In New York, you know, they have the the gunshot tracking software now. So we got microphones and booms and and streetlights. I mean, the the idea that we can just create a surveillance state that will then make everybody free would suggest that the only thing we've ever been missing is evidence. The only thing we've ever needed was proof. If we could just prove this stuff, we could just see this stuff. um, We'd be okay. But although and, there was also footage of the killings of Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, and Michael Brown, didn't have the impact that the killing of George Floyd had. Uh, well, that's that's that, that's right. That's my point. That the technology isn't enough. And although we didn't have video footage of Trayvon Martin, we had the audio call from from George Zimmerman, and people hear what they want to hear. Mike Brown, uh, when Mike Brown was killed uh, in Ferguson, in Ferguson, you know, Darren Wilson gave an account to the grand jury where he talked about Mike Brown walking through bullets. Mm. I mean, there's a way that our irrational white supremacist anxieties and fears of black people uh, shape our analysis, even if we have an image, right? I mean, George Floyd, I mean... Uh, well, you mentioned uh, the Eric Garner affair. He was killed after a New York City police officer put him in a, in a prohibited truck hold while he was arresting him on the suspicion of selling single cigarettes, and no criminal charges were brought against the police officer. Right. And and the argument was, well, it's not illegal. It's against NYPD code, but it wasn't against the law to use the chokehold. But the fact of the matter is, Eric Garner didn't need to die that day. 
he wasn't running, he wasn't physically resisting, and he declared multiple times that he could not breathe. Mm-hmm. But none of it seems to matter. So that comes back to the question you asked, right? Which is, why this time? What was it about George Floyd's killing? And I think that there's a few uh, factors. Uh, one thing is the context, right? We were all at home in the midst of a pandemic, captive audience watching this. Two, it was nine minutes and 29 seconds. This wasn't a snapshot. This wasn't a quick blip. This was nine minutes and 29 seconds of a knee on a neck, which has the kind of power and resonance of a still photo, right? Think of think of Emmett Till in 1955 uh, on the cover of the Chicago Defender or Jet Magazine, more importantly to me, uh, executed his head multiple times its normal size and his mom using that image to stir the conscience of a nation. So the nine minutes, 29 seconds in many ways was like that still, but it was video and video gives it a rawness. It gives it a realness. It makes people say, wait, I didn't see part of it. It wasn't doctored. I saw the full death sequence. So it gives it a kind of authenticity and realness and a sense of I was there that forced many Americans into a new um, position on this stuff because many Americans were still, particularly white Americans, were still in a state of denial. They were still saying, we saw the complete uh, killing of Ahmed Arbery. No arrests were made for more than two months after he was shot and killed while he was jogging in Georgia. Uh, the initial yeah. handling of the case resulted, of course, in widespread criticism of racial profiling in the United States, but it still took two months. Uh, yeah. Interestingly, uh, the they have been found guilty and given life sentences. So I guess yeah. the video evidence did wind up playing a really important role in the final outcome of the case. For sure. Video evidence, absolutely, but it plays a huge role. And and again, part of it also is that the George Floyd killing happens after Breonna Taylor. It happens after Ahmaud Arbery. It happens a couple of days after Christian Cooper was in Central Park in New York bird watching mm-hmm. and gets harassed and threatened by, and, and has the police weaponized against him by Amy Cooper. So in many ways, I think we'd had our fill. It's the same thing with Emmett Till, right? Emmett Till wasn't the only person lynched. He wasn't the only young boy who'd been killed. But August 28th of 55 became a watershed moment because we said enough. It wasn't the first lynching we'd seen. I'd be well as shown us so many. On the other but, hand, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, wound up being able to kill uh, two white protesters, but that was also based on racial issues. Absolutely. And again, this is why that I say black, that te- Black Lives Matter, which has become one of the big, more controversial movements in our history. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know any freedom movements that are worth anything that aren't controversial. Uh, all of them worthy of critique. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're being controversial for me is probably a good thing. I'm speaking in, in general of movements. I think what Kyle Rittenhouse's case talks when you go to Kenosha, looking for troubles your mama dropped you off and you got a gun and it's live streamed and it's videotaped and the, and the world sees it part of again what you realize is one we all enter or we approach a text with our own analysis right that is informed by our life and our history so there's a whole bunch of folk who watched Kyle Rittenhouse and said oh my god he's going there to save the day. He's going there to help. I mean, you heard police officers on their radio speaker, not the radio, excuse me, their loudspeakers in the car yelling out, thank you for your help. Thank you for your service to these to, to these random self-deputized people. 
there are many of us who saw that for what it for what it was to us, which was people going down there looking to kill some people. My point is, is that and then later of, the the footage was edited to serve as fundraisers for right wing movements. Absolutely. And that's the point I was about to say. Right. Which is that, you know, how you approach a text, how you narrate it, how you uh, the elements you add to it, all these things shape how you consume it. Right. So but the problem with the live stream approach is that when Kyle Rittenhouse posted on YouTube and suddenly or Facebook or wherever, and you suddenly think you're getting the raw uncut, but the choices that he makes, the choices that any of us make about what to show, what not to show, what, when do you sound, when not do you sound, what, what, what's, what subtitles to put on the screen, what lower thirds to put on the screen, all this stuff shapes how, how we, how we understand it. And so to Kyle Rittenhouse, this made the perfect fundraiser. It made the perfect piece of self-defense. It made the perfect claim that he's imposing order and morality in a reckless world led by this mythical Antifa and these crazy BLM folk, right? And then for a whole bunch of people on the other side, you know, we saw it as a white person, angry, frustrated, looking to use a weapon to interrupt peaceful protests or using a weapon to terrorize uh, angry protesters, using his whiteness and his weaponry to, to create an outcome that otherwise wouldn't have happened. And so that's why I say this technology, it's not enough to just get technology. Fox News got technology, right? The, the, Trump has technology. And, um, and many people on the right do. The United, the right rally in Charlottesville in 2017 was organized through social media, for example. Yeah, that's what I mean. The social media is used to organize. It's used to create flash mobs. It's used to spread information, misinformation, disinformation. I mean, it's used to, how much... uh, to, uh, to, to get people to go to the, the Capitol on January 6th. Yeah, yeah. Or, or what I was about to say was, you know, similar to the... Uh, the COVID-19 uh, disinformation. I mean, I can't tell you how many memes I've seen that were outright lies. And right now with monkeypox, how many, how much information is being spread via the internet that's, that is completely counter to what science says. But if you put it in a meme or you put it in an infographic, if you get enough people to tweet it, if you make a video with the right elements on it and it looks official, people will believe it. And people will make dangerous, unhealthy choices, not just for themselves, but for their fellow citizens. And so, you know, this stuff is scary business. And yes, you're right. It's the same tools and technologies and tactics that get people to January 6th. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Mark Lamont Hill, who has written with Todd Brewster a book called Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice, published by Atria Books. One of the uh, interesting people you write about is a self-proclaimed citizen journalist named Kristen T. Harris. He's in a chapter titled The Influencers. What, what did he do to uh, merit so many pages? <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's an interesting question you ask um, because there's a way when you're writing a book like this that you're attempting to tell so many stories um the stories of the sort of the legends the ida b wells barnett's the uh the frederick Douglasses, and then there's also uh the need to capture these ordinary people who do extraordinary things and Kristen harris uh or Kristen t as as, as um 
as Kristen is, is simply known, is a, is a citizen journalist uh, who live streamed the Kenosha confrontation uh, on a web show. Uh, Kristen T has a, a web show called The Rundown Live and did a kind of extensive profile of Kyle Rittenhouse in The New Yorker. And, and Harris has been known for the kind of risk-taking gonzo journalism that leads to like Pizzagate conversation. And when you hear Kristen Harris, you probably can also think of things like, um, well, QAnon, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. QAnon. Uh, and you can think about the kind of appeal to uh, right-wing values around liberty and independence and freedom and technocracy and all these things, basically stirring up right-wing anxiety and right-wing fear that we're losing the country and that the, the race question is central to how we will understand and ultimately resolve white anxiety about losing the country. So there's a way that these citizen journalists, while they're not uh, of the kind of world historical status of the legends, have collectively shaped or reshaped how the country operates. Suddenly you have a, uh, a country that isn't driven by Dan Rather or Walter Cronkite. You have a country that isn't necessarily all looking at the CBS, ABC, and NBC for news. They're going to YouTube. Hmm. And it's the average person. It's the everyday person with the right search engine optimization. It's the right person who can gin up anxiety among their friends and their peers and their base. It's the right person who can stir up the world enough to mobilize people, to get people on the ground in Kenosha, to get people to January 6th, to get in D.C., to get people to, uh, to Charlottesville. It, it's, it's, it's that you can continue to spread bad ideas and bad information with very little accountability uh, under the guise of being free, unbought and unbossed, under the guise of not being a, a corporate shill, under the guise of being independent from all the top down stuff. And there is some value in the independent rogue citizen journalist. But we've gotten into a moment where democratization has led to a, 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 a an inability to differentiate between uh, rigorous journalistic methods and somebody just talking. Well, I, I'd like to read you something that a listener has just written in. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, but uh, I, I, I'm always interested in how our listeners are responding to what we're talking about. He writes, please ask Dr. Hill if there's a movement toward justice then how can he explain the Republicans' effective use of disinformation concerning CRT, which isn't even taught in schools, and the banning of the 1619 Project, which is the whitewashing of American history and the negation of 400 years of black repression? Just like after the Reconstruction, I'm still reading, there was a backlash (laughs) that brought Jim Crow, there is a backlash against the recent progress on race by Republicans and their rhetoric. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. Um, pro- the progress that comes through technology and media, it's never simple. It's never easy. There is retrenchment. There's progress and there's retrenchment. We take two steps forward, we take one step back. Well, there's censorship going on, despite the fact that supposedly social media is available to everyone. Social media is available to everyone, but censorship is, I mean, Donald Trump also isn't on Twitter anymore, right? So there's a way that we are always making choices about what it means to have free speech and uh, what it means to have reasonable limitations on what people can say and do within a a collective citizenry, right? You, you, you can't, 
you know, freedom of speech doesn't mean all speech, and, and it's not absolute. It, there's there's many nuances and complications. Well, books are being to it. banned now. When you talk about um, sort of freedoms, uh, we have to understand that. At this, and this is one of the central points of the book is that again, one that these tools and technologies again are agnostic, and they're not they're not just in the hands of the freedom loving. And everybody who claims to love freedom has a very different uh, take on what that means. But it's also that we, we take two steps forward with this technology, but we're still we're still fighting these same fights and we're fighting new fights. Uh, and, the, and, and the media, social media technology will be the battleground on which it is waged. So I wouldn't use the fact that CRT is being pilloried and, and misrepresented or that 1619 is being banned or that race talk in school is being is being marginalized. I wouldn't take that as as, as evidence that we're not uh, making progress with media and technology. It's just a sign of where we have to go. Now, to your point about it being banned, you're right. Um, books being banned. Books being banned is a major problem right now. And uh, luckily, we have this book. And I want to thank you so much for being on our show. I've been speaking with Mark Lamont Hill, who is co-author with Todd Brewster of Seen and Unseen. Power. Technology, social media, and the fight for racial justice. You, you want to sum, sum up what you were saying? Should uh, I assume that there were many situations throughout American history that might have had different results if they'd been captured by, by video technology? Summing up is always tough, but I, I, I would say this. Um, we are at a moment of great possibility. We are standing at a moment where, after the death of George Floyd, have called for defunding, we've called for abolition, We've called for demilitarization. We got people in the streets. We got people excited. We have people energized. We can absolutely do this. We can absolutely win. But we cannot assume that because we got a few convictions, that we cannot assume that because we've caught a few people on tape being racist, that our work is, 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 is finished. We have to keep fighting. And these tools and technologies are part of the fight, but they also go into the ballot box. They also go into political organizing in, in person. They go into political education. They go into classroom education. They go into how we treat each other interpersonally. We have so much work to do, um, but I'm, I've never been more optimistic. But, uh, but polls been, are I, indicating that that many African-Americans uh, are going to vote for the Republicans in the next election. Yeah, but I, what I was going to say is I've never been more optimistic. I've never been more excited uh, about our possibilities here. And the idea of optimism uh, or hope or hopefulness, rather, uh, is different than optimism. I'm really hopeful. I'm not optimistic. I, I understand our challenges. I understand our limitations. I understand the, the, the dangers. I understand our failures. But I have an overarching belief in our ability to win. The numbers that show, you know, who black people will vote for, they're still being formed. Uh, we don't even know who people are running against. So, um, but if you look at races that are actually fully fleshed out, if you look at Raphael Warnock in Georgia, if you look at uh, even John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, which isn't a race-driven race, it seems to me that black people are overwhelmingly voting the right way. Now, who, you know, Joe Biden has not done much to earn the support of black folk. Uh, but I guarantee you, if DeSantis or Trump is on the other side of that ballot, black people will vote the way they uh, have always and, voted. And I have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. 
My great thanks to Mark Lamont Hill, award-winning journalist, uh, a host of uh, BET News, Black News Tonight, author and co-author of six books, and co-author in this case with Todd Brewster, who is the co-author with Peter Jennings of, of The Century. He is a senior producer for ABC News. Uh, and also the founding director of the West Point Center for Oral History. What a pleasure it's been having you on our show today. Thank you so much. Pleasure is mine. Take care. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, available on iTunes, Apple, everywhere else you get your podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org. Telephone number 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing you the unique in-depth content we broadcast here. Information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Seen and Unseen Technology, Social Media and the Fight for Racial Justice by Mark Lamont Hill and Todd Brewster. Make that call now. 212-209-2950 or go online to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member. Make Use those same numbers. Uh, become a BAI buddy at $10 a month and we'd be happy to send you all sorts of wonderful gifts. But uh, either way, it's important to help keep the station going during this time of crisis. Remember, we are the only station in the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Uh, and we please help us with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Professor Falguni Sheth discussing her new book, Unruly Women. We'll see you then.